Every year, 6,000 children in the state of Alabama are placed in temporary homes through foster care. Most of these children had been living in poverty, doing without the basics of life, a hard place for a vulnerable kid. At Alabama Baptist Children's Homes and Family Ministries, we have the amazing privilege of introducing these children to a life that is better than they ever imagined. We provide loving Christian foster families who are trained to serve their needs and who regularly point them to the author of hope and healing, Jesus Christ. Because of our amazing foster parents, church and business partners, supporters, and team, we are able to provide them everything they need and more for a healthy life. A roof over their head, a warm bed, new clothes, and a loving family. Our programs are like no other. Our campus homes are beautiful and spacious. Some have playgrounds and pools. Field trips, vacations, Christmas, Easter, and birthdays, celebrations and events that may be normal to you, are oftentimes like nothing these children have ever experienced. Turning hard places into safe spaces is what we do. We are Alabama Baptist Children's Homes and Family Ministries. We protect, nurture, and restore children and families through Christ-centered services. Well, good morning, church. Honest. How many of you are disappointed Zach's not preaching this morning? I get it. On a normal Sunday, I sit where you are, and I know what it feels like when the pastor isn't speaking. As a matter of fact, I've got a text this morning from people who sit on my row saying, where am I? And uh, that's, that's because we have our first grandbaby due within 48 hours, and we were all missing today, and they were checking in on us. So I understand your disappointment. Let me say it's well-founded. I've heard myself preach, and I've heard him preach, and uh, he's a lot better at this than I am. So if you'll lower your expectations, it's going to go really good. That's what I would suggest to you. Just lower them down real good. So in June of 1981, my family was going to go on an epic journey that has given me stories that lasted a lifetime. I was just graduating from the ninth grade in junior high school, about to go into high school. I was living in a town called Merritt Island, Florida. And my family was going to take a vacation trip to Yellowstone National Park. If you're not familiar with Merritt Island, Florida, it's due east of Orlando. If you're not familiar with Yellowstone National Park, it's in the northwest corner of Wyoming. Uh, it covers three states, Montana and Idaho. And so this was going to be our mode of transportation for uh, that journey on the screen. I'm not sure why you're laughing, but... My mom, my dad, myself, and my brother, who's four years younger than me, you now know that there are more adults than doors, uh, so it's going to be a little bit issue. This was the era of no seatbelts, there would be uh, no airbags. I do believe this was our first car that had power windows, so that was a big bonus. Uh, my dad, uh, we had a CB at the time, my dad's handle was window winder. He was in the auto glass business, so he called himself Window Winder, and that was going to be our journey. And you're probably sitting there thinking, and you're saying, well, where's, where's the, uh, you know, you'll be staying in lots of hotels. Oh, no. No, 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 no. We weren't rich. We couldn't stay in hotels for an entire month. Nope, couldn't do that. And then you're thinking, well, they just didn't show us the RV or the pool behind. Oh, that would have been nice, wouldn't it? That would have been real nice. Well, you're sleeping on the floor in a tent because no, there's no tent involved in this trip. You're, way, you're assuming a lot of things today. 
in the back of the bed of that truck, my father would go to the outdoor camping store and buy two cots. He would cut their legs off and duct tape them together, make a bunk bed system for my brother and I. So one of us would crawl in at a time when we were going to bed, and whatever position you crawled into, that's where you remained the rest of the night. I mean, there was, there was no turning over. Uh, and my mom and dad, we'd, we'd unload the Coleman stove. There's a lot of beanie weenies going to be consumed on this trip. All of our luggage would have been in the back of that. We would take the uh, valuable items and lock them in the cab. Everything else went underneath the truck. And that's kind of how every day rolled for us. Additionally, my mom owned an antique store, so we were going to be picking along the way, which meant those things would also go in the back, and we would be accumulating a whole lot more than what we started with. And that's how the journey went. And so there's going to be a lot of problems we had to encounter. For instance, you know, how could my dad ever get a month off? How could you afford it? You know, some of the things that we solved even before we left. And it was the, middle, it was the early June, and we ventured out on our very first night, and we stopped in New Orleans. Now, at that point in time, the internet had not been invented. There was no YouTube. There wasn't even the cop show, which would have proven to be quite helpful to us. But middle of the night, the very first night, midnight, June, New Orleans, get your head around the back of that truck for just a moment. It was a little what? It's a little warm. A little warm. And the mosquitoes in New Orleans are ginormous. I mean ginormous. So I can remember that very first night hearing my bed crank up as we, my dad was driving to this local 7-Eleven to buy those bit coil mosquito repellent candles. We would return to the campsite. We would put them in the back of the truck where we would be sleeping. We would then light them so that we could sleep peacefully over the gas tank. And so that was the way the whole journey began. We'd encounter a lot of problems. We got to Denver. I'd never been to a big city before. We got to Denver, and our very first night, we're driving in downtown Denver, and it's a three-lane road, and it's completely stopped because there was a drunk gentleman wandering back and forth across three lanes of traffic. I had never seen anything like that. We'd have a tornado siren go off in Denver. My dad would also get sick in Denver, but that didn't stop our vacation. We just loaded him in the back of that truck and he laid there all day long while we went out and about and did our things. And so I learned a lot about a lot of states on that day, both the good and the bad. And today I want to talk with you really about our state and the beauty of you being in it, but also some problems that exist that we can actually kind of solve. And so let's go on that journey together. Open up your Bible, if you don't mind, to Acts chapter 4. And the, all the verses that I read today are going to be on the screen as well. Um, but we're going to read about Acts chapter 4. It's going to tell us the story of a group of people just like us. And uh, they had a problem in their city, and they went after it to try to solve it. And we'll see together what they did. Acts chapter 4, uh, beginning in verse uh, 32, the scriptures are on the screen. It says this, all the believers were of one heart and mind. No one claimed that any of their possessions was their own, but they shared everything they had. With great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and God's grace was so powerfully at work in them all that there was not a needy person among them. For from time to time, those who owned land or houses sold them. They then brought the money from the sales and put it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to anyone who had need there was this gentleman by the name of Joseph. He was a Levite from Cyprus. 
Apostles called him Barnabas. His name meant son of encouragement. He actually sold the field that he owned and brought the money and put it at the apostles' feet. So I want to start just by saying that the gospel, the good news, the existence of Jesus Christ in the world, his death, burial, and resurrection, the Bible calls that good news. There's another word for it in the Bible called the gospel. The gospel can solve a problem in here. Like we all have a problem in here and it can solve it. I shared with you that I grew up on an island. I mean, what a unique way to grow up as a kid. I, I literally an island, Merritt Island. Our mainland on the uh, east side would have been Cocoa Beach. If you're familiar with the television show back in the day, I Dream of Jeannie, or the original Ron John Surf Shop. Then on the other side would have been Cocoa. On the north end would have been Cape Canaveral, Kennedy Space Center. So I grew up surrounded by water. You'd walk out my front door, 40 or 50 feet. You have the intercoastal waterway. If I went out the back door, I'd travel maybe 20 minutes through marshland and woods, and I would be in another intercoastal waterway. When the rocket ships went up, the ground would shake at my house. The windows would rattle. We lived in an old house. And just for a little bonus information, I grew up in Merritt Island, Florida, and we had no air conditioning growing up. Can you believe that? None. I didn't have air conditioning in my car or my house until I went away to college. So that's the saddest story you could ever hear in the modern world, isn't it? That is absolutely true. I throw that out at parties all the time. What do you not know about Todd? They'll never guess that one. So I grew up thinking about space a lot, watching these rocket ships go up, and a lot of time on the water, and a lot of time in the woods. And as a little boy, when you're out alone in the midst of things that are so much bigger than you are, your brain starts to wander. It's like, what's all that sky out there? And what's on the other side of all of that? And if you close your eyes and you think hard enough as a little boy, you get to yourself, you get to a point where there's so much darkness on the other side of all of that and you can't fathom it ever ending that it gets very scary and bone chilling and you have to shake your head and go throw a rock or something to move beyond that thought. It just terrified me as a young boy. I don't know what young girls think about. That's what this young boy thought about. And so then I began to kind of process all of this, like, what's this all about? And I could physically touch my skin and bones, and I understood muscles and all those kinds of things, but just a little layer than that, there were some other things underneath me, inside of me, that were a little perplexing, like feelings. Like, does it surprise you that a man would struggle with feelings? But there I was as a young boy struggling with feelings, but it was like laughter and crying. Like, I couldn't stop myself from laughing in middle school, right? Have you ever laughed so hard you just can't stop? I can still do it as a, as a man today if something's really funny. Have you ever tried to stop yourself from crying when you're really sad? I mean, it's these powerful things inside of us that just happen because we're processing life. And then underneath that, there are these other feelings like peace. Have you ever felt peace, purpose, fulfillment? Like try to explain that to a nine-year-old boy. Then there's this other thing called guilt. Has anybody in the room ever felt guilt? Yes, no. Anybody? Anybody? Figure that one out for just a moment. I remember the first time that I felt guilt. I was a young boy, uh, and my mother came to me in the middle of the morning, and she said, hey, Todd, did you brush your teeth today? (sighs) That's a dumb question. Of course I brushed my teeth today. What young boy would not brush his teeth? (laughs) Todd. Did you happen to put toothpaste on the toothbrush? (sighs) Duh. That's brushing. Yeah. 
Well, she, you know, moms know everything, and mom knew well that I did put the toothbrush in my mouth. She was also well aware of that second question. There was no toothpaste. Why would you put that flavor in your mouth as a boy? As a, ah, nah. We didn't have bubblegum flavored toothpaste back then. What's another sad story, isn't it? No air conditioning, no bubblegum flavored toothpaste, and there I was. And I remember what I felt inside. That lied. You know, the Bible says that Satan, the enemy, is the father of what? Lies. So in that moment in my life, I didn't know that Bible verse, but at that moment in my life, I just participated that in something that was very dark, very evil. I just thought I wouldn't brush my teeth. But yet on the inside, I felt, I felt guilt. And the only way you can feel that way is if there's this great, good God out there that's judging against that. You know what I'm saying? He's judging against that. And, and that thing's inside of you and it's inside of me, not to make us feel bad. It's there to say, hey, mm, there's a better way to go at life. There's a better way. And I can remember that entire feeling. I don't say that to make you feel guilty. I don't need to make you feel guilty. You can't stop from feeling guilty. You're like I am. We can't stop it. Did you notice the first three words in the Bible that we read today? It said this, all the believers. That was it. This whole story starts with those three words, all the believers. I can remember the day years after my toothpaste episode, years when I believed. In vacation Bible school, my mom had decided to take me. We weren't church-going people. As a matter of fact, my parents didn't come to faith until I was a teenager. I can remember watching my mom and dad be baptized as a teenager. But that day, we had made our way to vacation Bible school, and I sat right back there. We had just said the pledge to the Bible, the pledge to the Christian flag, all those great little holy moments you do in vacation Bible school. And the pastor said, does any little kids today want to believe in Jesus and go to heaven? Well, who doesn't want to do that? Well, I stepped out right from there and made my way down here. And as a little boy, I knew, like I knew guilt at that point in my life. So I knew the wrong path. I also knew there was a better path, and I wanted to be a part of the better path, and I wanted heaven, and I wanted Jesus. Do you remember the day you believed? Not the day you learned everything there is to know about the Bible. Not the day you got your life all figured out. Not the day you're no longer embarrassed about your past. The day you believed. Then as a teenager, I realized that that belief really does matter because God will direct you in college and who you date and don't date and your careers and all kinds of things. So I'm on this journey of living out that decision I made a long time ago where I just believed. Just believed. All the believers. There's an interesting story in the Bible one day. Jesus was teaching, and he was in a house, and it was slammed with people. They were everywhere. As a matter of fact, there were people at the doorways and at the windows. No one could get anywhere near. And there's these group of friends. that they, ha- they had a friend who was paralyzed. And they wanted to get this guy to Jesus because they wanted Jesus to do what? Healing. Well, they couldn't. Couldn't get to it. So one of them got creative, and they were really committed to this cause, right? So they decided they would climb up on the roof, that they would dig a hole in the roof, and they would lower this gentleman into the room. Just get a visual of that. 
Like, did they lower him down like this? So he was coming in hanging? Was he on a cot and it was teeter? I mean, it had to be a scene. We did it. We got him to Jesus. He lays on the floor. Jesus looks at him, and what does he say? Your sins are forgiven. Do you think they felt disappointed? They wanted him to be what? Healed. Jesus is saying, no, he's got a bigger problem than that. It's this problem that all of us have. That's the problem I need to solve. Your sins are forgiven. Eh, You can get up and walk on out now. I can do that too. I can solve the day-to-day problem, but I can do the other one too. So I want to ask you this question. Are you a believer? Like Jesus has identified, it's the most significant problem in all of our lives. He's put this little thing inside of us, a conscience that's constantly saying, hey, come towards me. There are problems out there, and we're going to talk about them in just a moment. But the only reason there's problems out there is because we live out there. And the problems live what? In here. All the believers. Just believe. And if you don't believe yet, believe today. Say, I ain't got all figured out, but I'm going to believe today. All right? So let's move on. The gospel can solve a problem in here, but it can solve a problem out there too. So let's go back at our story to Acts chapter 4 and let's look at that. Acts chapter 4 says this. It says, with great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And God's grace was so powerfully at work in them all that there were what? There were no need people among them. God's work was so powerful in those simple believers, there was no needy people among them. For from time to time, those who owned land or houses sold them, they brought the money from the sales and put it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to anyone who had a need. So, the problem the early church solved was poverty. They looked around their city, and they said, there's a lot of needy people around here. We should do something about this. I can't do something about this, but hey... What if we all go in together? Can we do something about this? And it says, there were no needy people. So let's think for a moment about problems that exist in our cities. We could talk about how cancer is a problem, like, oh, that's horrible, right? Violence, crime, poverty, drug addiction. Can we solve those, yes or no? Mm, It's not a trick question. Jesus can solve them. We're in church, we'll say that. We mm, can't, can't solve them. Our president, Dr. Rod Marshall, likes to say this, dark things happen every day. Really dark things. So I work at the Alabama Baptist Children's Homes. We're the largest faith-based provider of foster care services in the state. Every day, there's a child in our state, 11 on average, that have the experience where an official comes to their school and says, "Mm, I'm sorry, but you can't go home today. It's not safe. You need to come with us. And why? How does that happen? There's all kinds of reasons. It could be a tiny little baby that's born in the NICU that tests positive for drugs. It could be a mom or dad that's arrested. It could be a tragic death in a car accident. It's always the most traumatic things that your brain can never fathom happening. And they just happen. And here's this little one kind of on this journey. So let me give you a few numbers. 11 every day in our state enter the foster care system. That's about 6,000 active foster kids a day. 
6,000. There are a little over 3,000 Southern Baptist churches in our state. Like if we had a really good middle school math person in the room right now, we could figure this out, couldn't we? Like that math works, yes or no? Like that's, that's a number you can get your head around. When we throw in all the Presbyterian, Methodist, non-denominational, Assembly of God, not, you know, evangelical churches across the state, it's going to be close to 10,000. There are more churches in our state than what? Foster kids. And I, I'm in one church today, and I'm speaking two times, and I'm going to speak to hundreds of folks. Like the number of all the believers, way outnumber foster kids. So when we look at a story like this in the Bible and we say, oh, the community was so much smaller. Of course they could solve poverty. It was just small back then. I want you to know there's a problem we can solve. Like we could solve it tomorrow. The numbers are so good. Now, let's look at James chapter 1 for just a moment. Let's talk about this belief that we've all entered into. James 1.27 says this, that religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this, is that we do what? Look after the orphans. That first word religion means believers. So the first 15 years of my life, I was a professional vocational minister. Ordained, weddings, funerals, the whole nine yards. The two questions I got a lot as a pastor was, one, I, I just don't know God's will for my life. The other one was, is how's my life ever going to bear spiritual fruit? Well, you just look at a verse like that, and it says, our faith calls us to what? You get God's will and fruit all in one. There's one translation that translates it this way. It doesn't say look after. It says just care. God just wants us to, to care. So day one is quite possibly the worst day in the life of a young, innocent, vulnerable kid. And then great people like you begin to make a difference. So on day two, they would come to us. One of our minivans would drive to a DHR office that we would welcome this little one into our care. And, and oftentimes they come with nothing. Like if they're taken you know, from their schools, they wouldn't get to go home and get clothes or toys or food or any of those kinds of things. It's complex problems that you just can't explain. It's very disorienting. And so we'd walk them into some wonderful rooms like this that we have at ABCH full of supplies where there's clothes, there's toys, there's snacks, there's car seats. Yeah, there's another photo, I think, of, of diapers. About a year ago, that closet was completely empty. So in the middle of summer, we had no diapers. We give them out every single day. And our, our director in Birmingham, she asked me, could we get some diapers? So we made one Facebook post, one that we needed diapers. We had 10,000 pieces show up at our offices in Birmingham within a week's time. It was this amazing train of Amazon and UPS and FedEx just coming through. Wonderful people like you that just care. They couldn't solve the problem themselves, but together, together we can. So, believe, then care. Believe, then care. These little ones, like right now, we've, uh, we're providing Christmas for every single one, just like you did. Through great people, they call us and they just say, hey, can we provide Christmas for them? All the way up until if a child graduates high school in our care and qualifies for college, great people like you have already set aside money at the children's home and their college education is paid for 100%. 100%. Because we realize the moment is fostered, but what we're really trying to do is turn around generational bondages and pain into generational hopes and promises. And that's the wonderful work that we get to do together. So the Bible says that we believe, then it says that we care, 
And then the last thing it's going to do, it's going to direct us to share. So the gospel does talk about our possessions. So let's go back to the story real quick, and let's look at this. Acts chapter 4 says, All the believers were of one heart and one mind. No one claimed that any of their possessions was their own, but they did what? Shared. They just shared. What's one of the very first lessons we teach little ones in our home? Share. Believe. Care. Share. Then it tells us this great story about that guy named Barnabas. You'll remember this. It says, Joseph, a Levite from Cyprus, whom the apostles called Barnabas, means son of encouragement. He actually sold something he owned, and he brought the money to the apostles' feet. So he looked in his pockets and said, man, I'm tapped. But you know what? I own something. I could sell it. He got real creative, and they solved the problem. And what I love about this story, it's not the first time we hear of this happening. If you'll turn in your Bibles a little bit to the left, Acts chapter 2. What I love about this is the very first day, the very first church ever met. Jesus died, resurrected, has gone up to heaven. The church is meeting for the very first time. The author of Acts, Luke, writes this. All the what? All the believers. All the believers were together and they had everything in common. They sold their property and possessions and they gave it to anybody who had need. The very first thing the church ever did was they shared. They shared. So I've told you my story. So I'm in my mid-20s, and my career path, I find myself at seminary, right? Largest seminary in the world. I'm taking theology classes, 90 hours worth, three years, Bible. I wasn't raised going to Sunday school. I remember how inadequate I felt in those classes because everybody knew the Bible stories except one dude, (laughs) one dude, and that was me. And I hated reading books when I was was a terrible reader. But if they ever called on me to read, I would avoid it, avoid it, avoid it because it was going to be a slow sentence in front of everybody else. So I want to go back to that word for just a moment, believe. When you talk to foster parents... What they tell you, we think of them as heroes. And they say, oh, don't ever say that about us. The kids are the heroes. You know what we do? We just open up our home and live each day with them. We come home at night. We cook meals. We have birthday parties. We go shopping. We help them do their homework. We don't do heroic stuff. We just do normal stuff, showing the unconditional love of Christ. And so sometimes we can make things real complex. Like you don't have to know all the Bible. You don't have to have all your past cleaned up. You don't have to have the perfect life. The Bible asks you to do this, believe, care, and then what? Share. So I went to college in West Palm Beach, Florida, extremely wealthy community, and I... uh, served on a staff in Naples, Florida, which was extremely wealthy. I remember the very first day I was putting gas in my car and a Rolls Royce pulled up next to me and the chauffeur got out and put gas in that car. That just seemed like that car should always have gas in it. If you're paying that much for a car, why are you doing the same thing I'm doing? Just utter shock. Just shock. So it drove me to look at the Bible a lot when it comes to money. 
And so I want to share just a few verses that I found in the Bible. And I want you to know this is a safe conversation. Your money is fine. You're going to actually be really surprised by what the Bible says about money. Let's look at this verse together in 1 Timothy. It says, command those who are rich in the present world not to be arrogant nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God who richly provides us everything for what? Did you know the Bible says that God gives you everything you have so that you'll enjoy it? Did you know know that? I remember the first time I read that, I thought it was a mistake, like there was some kind of misprint in my Bible. Because I've always heard that it's the love of money that is the root of all what? Evil. No, God blesses you because he wants you to enjoy it. Is anybody going to enjoy money in the next 45 days? You're going to have any amount of fun with money? Yes, no. My, my wife's been Christmas shopping last night, sitting on the couch. She's having a great time. It's okay. God gave it to you so you'd enjoy it. Don't feel bad about it. It's okay. It's okay. Thank him for it. It's a blessing. Next verse. Anyone who has been stealing must steal no longer, but must work doing something useful with their own hands that they may have something to what? Share. God gave you a job so you'd have something to enjoy and so that you have something to what? Share. Your job is is ordained by the Lord. Another big story in my life, when I had Pastor Zach's job for the first 15 years, good people like you would always come up to me and they would say, man, I wish I had your job because I could see all that fruit you are getting to bear. Inside of me, you know what I was saying? I want to trade places with you. Like I wanted to be you. So I did something ridiculous. 15 years in my early 30s, I walked away from full-time ministry with no place to go to figure it out. And I've been in the marketplace ever since. God gives us jobs in the marketplace so that we have something to what? Share. Share. Your job is your calling. It's your giftedness to do something good that Pastor Zach can't do. Tomorrow, you're going to go to work, and you know who's not going to be with you? You know who all you're going to influence? All those people. All those people. God gave you a job to enjoy, gave you a job so you have something to share. Last thing, last verse. If anyone has material possessions, just like that guy named Barnabas, and sees a brother or sister in need but has no pity on them, How can the love of God not be in that person? So God gives you stuff to share too. Like the kingdom advances through all of us in very simple ways. Believe, care, and what? Share, believe, care, and share. So we gave you a handout. It's in your bulletin day. How do we we get involved in caring and sharing? There's really three simple things you can do. You can pray, you can serve, or you can give. There's a bookmark that has prayer on it. Uh, You can go to our website, get seven days of prayer. You can become a daily prayer partner with us, and we'll ship you a story every month that you can pray specifically for a kid or a foster family. Prayer is not the least you do. It's the most you do. Our prayer people are battling darkness for the sakes of these little ones. Don't Don't think if that's where you are in your stage of life and that's your role in the game that it's a little role. It's the supernatural power of Christ that helps these little ones through their traumatic experiences. 
You can serve. Like we certify folks to volunteer for foster families. You can collect items. And then you can also give. We invest about $40 a day in helping a little one. But I didn't say this in the first service. We actually have a, a home not far from here in Gardendale for homeless single moms who are at risk of losing their kids. And they can come and live with us for a year to hopefully keep them out of the system and supporting a single mom in one of those situations is about $60 a day. Just to give you perspective, you can do something. Not everyone's called to foster, but we're all called to do what? Something. Something. Everybody can do something. So um, to start to wind this up, my first 15 years of career, I served on staff in really large churches like yours on main thoroughfares. The kind that hired police officers to manage traffic, right? Those kinds. Like, how could you not know who we were? So I would do a little test. I would go out into the community, and I would just ask them, not tell them who I was. I'd ask them, what do you think about First Baptist Church? And they would say, what? You know, the big church you drove by to get past here? Oh, that's a church? Had no idea. Had no idea our big building, our big facility existed on the main thoroughfare. And so I wonder if one day a foster kid in our state has ever asked, what did the church do for you? If they would say, church? What church? Well, when I quit my job, I started a consulting business. And I spent a lot of time on planes. I had a lot of devotional time on planes. A lot. And so I remember the day I was reading the book of Proverbs. And this verse just jumped off the page as me in the business community Can we look at this verse? When the righteous prosper, another way to say that is when the believers are doing good. The city, what? Rejoices. When you, as a believer, are sharing and caring, your city's grateful for your presence. Like, our cities can know us, and they can know that our faith really matters. When the wicked perish, there are shouts of joy. Through the blessing of the upright, a city is exalted. Like your city can go to great places when we live out our faith the way the Bible calls us to. Don't wait till you get it all figured out. Believe. Care. And share. That's it. Believe, care, and share. We can all do all of that. So thank you for having me today. I want to share with you a couple of real life stories of kids who one day had the worst day My of their life. was actually an alcoholic. But now they don't. Home and he was home, you know. Home. It just wasn't really a good um, situation. And I just had to, you know, care for myself, provide for myself. When I first moved to the Alabama Baptist Children's Home, I remember that they did give me that childhood, you know, to just enjoy myself and be a kid and be a teenager and not really have to worry about, you know, where am I going to get money, where am I going to get food, where am I going to get clothing, that they took care of all of that for me in a safe and secure environment. And the thing I remember the most was having like our nightly devotionals and just having our time in the living room to just kind of talk about our day. And I remember that being like a huge thing that I didn't have before. So that was like, this is what I want to do whenever I have a family. I actually been married for almost five years now and I have a one-year-old named Henry. The Alabama Baptist Children's Home paid for Um, me to go to college. I actually graduated with a bachelor's of management debt-free 
and that is a huge relief to not have to worry about um, paying back the debt. I was in an environment that many children are in throughout our entire country. I was in an environment where there was no real security. There was nothing guaranteed, nothing you could take for granted, uh, whether it be meals or affection. And I remember my first time I was with my parents, we were grocery shopping. Uh, my foster mother, uh, Karen, asked me uh, what I like to eat. And that's a question I'd never been asked before. Just uh, what I preferred to eat, you know, and she asked me if I like squash, and I don't even think I knew what that was. And we always read scripture every single day with my uh, foster parents. And I remember for the first time, you know, eating those big breakfasts, which I had never experienced, you know, and sitting around a table was very foreign to me. And if, for the first time, I was, I felt secure and safe enough to really listen to the words of scripture. And early on, when we had never heard scripture, so we were working our ways through, you know, our way through the Gospels, and, and the words of John really spoke to me uh, right there at the table very early on. And then about a year later, sitting at that same table uh, while having breakfast, my foster dad was walking us through what it means to follow Christ and call out to Christ for His grace and to follow Him thereafter. And I accepted Christ on that day, um, and. On that day, all I could think back to was the first time that I really listened to those words of truth and how it kind of it planted a seed in my soul, uh, which sprouted in salvation uh, the following year. The children's home is very unique in that they offer kids an opportunity that they would get almost nowhere else and opportunities they would never be able to pursue or even have the hope and faith in themselves to pursue if it wasn't an option. And all of those things come through the donations and the contributions of people listening to their heart when God is speaking.